Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Things happen the way they happen for a reason. I'm thankful. I don't, I don't regret being put in prison, actually, if you want the truth. This is part three of the story of a man who was once one of America's most wanted men until his arrest in July of 26, 2010. Arrested for the killing of five American expats in Panama. Killings he would later confess to. However, he would contest the prosecutor's version of events, stating that these killings were all contract killings, ordered by drug cartel associates. This is the story of Wild Bill, as told by the man himself from his prison cell in Panama. My name's Jack Lawrence. Welcome to Wanted. I'm a wanderer of the soul Before the end I plan to behold But I know so in our previous episode, while Bill had discovered that life working as the Costa Rican elite's baseball bat was very lucrative and he was enjoying the fruits of his labour, shall we say, as he was living at an exclusive country club overlooking the 17th tee. But, like with most of Wild Bill's life, trouble wasn't far behind, and a late-night call that he would receive one evening would set him on the path to having to go on the run yet again. I got a call in the middle of the night. I was in my home on the 17th green in the Cariari Country Club, and I got a phone call that some guys were in deep trouble and they needed some help, some advice. And so, for one thing or another, they had, these guys had, 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 had come up with a body. You know, they'd killed somebody, and not on purpose. And so, the, the question then became, what do we do to get rid of the body? So, I went to where they were and checked out the situation, and I said, well, this is what we should do. We should do this, 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 and this. And they said, no, that's disgusting. They didn't want to cut the body up because they found that disgusting. And I said, well, I'm not going to cut the body up because I didn't do the killing. And I'm not going to involve myself that deeply in your crime. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not going to involve myself. I'm not going to take care of it for you because they're not going to pay me either. These were other bad guys. These were not. These were other bad guys, you know, like me, other, other, other organized criminal associates working for my bosses. So I just went as a favor to, like, try to cover their ass, so to speak. And, you know, one hand washes the other in that world anyway, and we're all friends and I really do like to help help out, and, and so I went. But I said, "Well, I'm not 
gonna gonna get the hacksaw out and take care of this for you. You're gonna have to do it yourselves, and this is how you do it. And they said, no, we're gonna do this other thing with it. We're gonna go bury it in this place. And I said, that's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Do what I told you. And they they didn't. They wouldn't do it. So I said, well, I'm leaving. I'm not. I told you. You asked me for help. I've come to give help. You don't want my help. I'm leaving. So I left, and that was the last I heard about it. And about a long time went by, maybe six months. And six months later, I mean, I'd done a million jobs and, and really ro- risen in the underworld of Costa Rica. Now, remember, I'm in Costa Rica as a fugitive, right? I'm a fugitive from the United States. And in my paperwork, I have some false paperwork and stuff, you know, for when the cops stop me or something. And, and a cursory investigation about me would be, well, I would come back fine, but in a, like an in-depth investigation about me is going to produce problems. I mean, if we get to the point where they take fingerprints or something, I'm in deep shit. So it turned out that they found the body. The cops somehow found the body and the body got, got disinterred on accident and the police were called and, and, and the, the boys were all arrested and somebody ratted. I don't know who. And my name came up in it. Nobody accused me of killing anybody, just the fact that I was an accessory. And, and my, my contact at the OIJOTA, which is like the Costa Rican version of the FBI called me and said, hey, man, they've issued a warrant for your arrest. You got to get the fuck out of here. So it was unfortunate I had to leave Costa Rica because of that. Now, since that time, that has all been settled and arranged. My participation in that crime was just as an advisor. And so when those guys all went to jail, that my the arrest warrant expired on me because that's how that works there. I didn't I never got charged. So much to his disappointment, it was time, yet again, for Bill to skip town. But this time, he couldn't just disappear to another part of Costa Rica. This time, he was heading south. To Panama. So I had to leave. So I went to Panama, which I had visited a couple of, you know, a couple of times and I used to work out of, but I never, I never went to the Chiriqui province of Panama. And everybody told me that that's where the gringos are. That's where the Americans and the expats are going because they have everything there. They have the ocean, they have the mountains. It's like supposed to be the best place. And, and also I went there because I didn't know anybody. I thought it'd be a good place to start over. So I went and I rented a small house and began to look around. Now there's an expat city a city of just foreigners. I mean, like there are obviously Panamanians there, but but the majority of the people walking around are people from out of outside of of Panama, foreigners from the first world. It's called Boquete, which means like bouquet of flowers, Boquete, and it's way up in the mountains, right next to an dormant volcano. Beautiful, so beautiful this town. I went. I just fell in love with the place. I'd never been. I'd, I'd worked in Panama a long time, but I'd never been there. So, I mean, and there's money there, like real money there. You know, it's really an expense. It's almost like Beverly Hills or something. As Bill says, Boqueta truly is a stunning part of the world, sitting almost 4,000 feet above sea level. Small population of just 19,000 people, 60 kilometres away from the Costa Rican border. It was the perfect little slice of paradise for a man like Bill to disappear. But what to do now in his new home? Well, it would be another chance encounter that would see Bill quickly find his new vocation. And I sat on a park bench at the park and met this big fat guy named Gustavo, Don Gustavo. 
Don Gustavo was a man who was a big wheel in Noriega's government uh, when, when the United States invaded. And he began to tell me stories about how he had lost a leg in the invasion. That he got his leg blown off and he had like a peg leg, you know, uh, a prosthetic, but like literally like a peg leg, though. I mean, I'm not talking about like a th- something that looks like a leg. It was like literally like a peg, like a, he looked like a pirate, but he was a big fat guy. And he walked, he waddled when he walked because of that peg leg. And um, Don Gustavo had built this huge like office complex right there on the, the, the park. And the park is beautiful. It's like a perfectly pristine little park right in the center of town. And he asked me what I did. And I just, off the top of my head, I said, well, I'm a psychiatrist from the United States. And that's not true at all, obviously. I have no psychiatric training at all. And he's like, well, why don't you rent one of my offices and set up a practice here? That's what he said. I said, maybe I'll do that. What will you rent me one for? And he said, 300 bucks a month. So I said, well, I'll think about it. Bill does more than think about it because Bill has seen his opportunity. So he heads home to study up and, of course, get some qualifications. I went back to my house and I bought two books online. I bought uh, a primer of Freudian psychology and a primer of Jungian psychology. So I read... Freud's theories, I read Jung's theories, and I mean, this is, I know this is like the basics of psychoanalysis, but I felt that I could pull it off, that I could bullshit my way through it. So the next day I printed myself up some documents, some uh, like uh, uh, some bullshit diplomas from uh, universities in the United States that, that no longer exist. I found universities that, that failed, that were no longer open, and nobody could check my credentials, and, and that was my thought anyway, that anybody ever tried to check, they wouldn't be able to check because the, the universities are no longer open and I printed me up something and I went in and I rented the place and hung my hung my shingle on the wall and uh, and opened up a psychiatric practice I bought uh, a black leather couch and a black leather seat, uh, chair and set up in there Dr. Bill is all set and ready to go now all he needs are some clients In Boquete, there's what they call a gringo meeting at the Panamonte Hotel every Sunday. Every Sunday at like 11 o'clock in the morning, there's a brunch where all of the American expats come. And it's, it's primarily an gr- American thing, but like there are like a lot of other people too. You know, there's a guy from, guys from England, Ireland, Germany, folks from there. But maybe there's like 250, 300 people come to this gringo meeting. So I introduced myself like, hi, I'm Dr. William Reese is what I called myself. I'm Dr. William Reese. Call me Bill. I've opened up a psychiatric practice. You can find it there. Uh, North Panama Mental Health That's what I called it. And I had this beautiful little office set up, air-conditioned, nice little office right there on the thing. So immediately from that meeting, I picked up like eight different people that wanted to set up, wanted to take, you know, I gave them my phone number and I had a cell phone, you know, and I gave them my phone number and just set up meetings there. So all of them were like middle-aged, middle to late-aged women. And here's the thing. What happens in Panama a lot is that the Americans move down here as a couple. And the old man, who's 60, moves down with his wife, who's also 60 or 55. He begins like affairs immediately, almost immediately. And the women are really upset about it. And that was 90% of my business. 90% of my business were women who came in who were unhappy because their husbands had discovered the Panamanian girls or had discovered playing golf and have left them there and they have nobody to talk to. And literally, I would just sit there and say, 
I think I actually was a pretty good psychotherapist, if you want the truth, because like everybody, like they recommended me to their friends. People would come. And the nice thing about it wasn't just I was making really good money. I was, I was doing 150 bucks an hour in 2006. This was 2006, end of 2006, first part of 2007. I was making 120 bucks an hour, 150 bucks an hour, and I got invited to all the parties. Again, Bill had fallen on his feet, found himself surrounded by rich people who were loose with their money. He's back enjoying the high life and all the trappings that come with it, women, alcohol, and parties. I went to this place called Valle Escondido, Valle Escondido, which means Hidden Valley. It's very exclusive. You can't hardly get in there. You, you, have, to, you have someone to have to invite you. But a bunch of guys, a bunch of old retired guys, had a poker club that played poker there in the, in the clubhouse every Thursday afternoon. So I started playing poker there because, I, one, I like to play poker, and, two, it was a great place to go and smoke cigars and just and like be a, be a hotty-totty badass, you know, like the biggest and the best. And so I would go there, and everybody, you know, would defer to Dr. Reese, Dr. Bill, and, and smoke cigars and drink liquor and play, play Texas Hold'em poker. So we were playing Texas Hold'em poker one night, and we'd all heard the rumors that Mel Gibson was staying at, at, at a, a villa on the inside of Valle Escondido. And we were actually, everybody was talking about, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? And so we're playing poker, and in walks Mel Gibson and sits down to play poker, too. And so he sits down, and everybody starts to attack him with questions and asking him about the Passion of the Christ and this and that, and there's another thing. And you could see in his face that he was like, Fuck. You know, he was like, he wanted to sit down and just be like a normal guy. I could tell. He just wanted to, just, just wanted to play poker and, and smoke a cigar and, and, and be cool. That's what he wanted to do. So I, dealing in, I said, hey, boys, why don't y'all shut the fuck up and let take this rich bastard's money? That's what I said. And he looked over at me and smiled and he said, who are you? I said, I'm Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill Reese. And he shook my hand. He said, thanks, Bill. And so we started playing poker. We played poker for about an hour and a half and he got up and left and, and patted me on the shoulder when he left. I knew he was, I think, I think that he felt thankful that, that I, I allowed him just to be a normal guy for a little while. And funny that he was sitting next to one of the most infamous assassins in the history of Central America and had no idea. And I didn't, I didn't know it then either. I wasn't, I wasn't an assassin yet. Well, it would seem Bill is set for life. As Dr. Bill, listening to the problems of married retirees and hobnobbing with the occasional celebrity, what could possibly go wrong? Well, as we've learnt already by now, where there's Bill, there's trouble. And eventually, the ghosts of his past would soon catch up with him. But one night I was at the Bistro. Is a, is a infamous or a famous, I don't know if it's still there or not. I've been in prison for a long time. But the bistro was owned by a lady named Lorelai, an American woman, and, and she was a nut. She was a really nice person, very, very, very colorful person. And she, she owned, a, she owned this, this really nice upscale restaurant and bar right on Main Street. And so I was there one night. It was karaoke night, but I wasn't singing, which I often did sing and often loved to sing. I wasn't singing, but I was sitting back, again, smoking a cigar and having a drink. And in walked an army, like maybe six associates from the cartel from which the same cartel that I used to work for when I was a human trafficker. And they walked in on purpose. Just, they were there for me and sat down. And, and one, of, one of the man who was directly my boss sat down with me and explained to me that they were unhappy that I had ran out on them and they knew that I owed them a favor because I, they, they didn't kill me. And they didn't kill me because I ran away, I think is why they didn't kill me. But that 
now they knew where I was and what I was doing, and they were unhappy that I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't working for them anymore. And our association was one in which that you couldn't leave once you join. And it wasn't like it wasn't like Cosa Nostra in the United States either. We're talking about a really loose organization of of people. It's not not like not very well organized at all, actually. But um, basically, they well, basically what the conversation was. We own your ass because you killed one of our people. We know about it. We know where the body's buried, so you're going to do what we say. And I was devastated because I was enjoying my life. I had a good life. I, I thought I could pull that shit off forever. I thought I would just, I was going to walk off into the sunset as Dr. Bill Reese, you know? I was really excited about it and, and um, sad that the cartel was there to pull me back in and destroy the life that I built. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Bill explains the cartel, how he would become entrenched in it, and the go-to guy when someone needed to disappear. What's gone is gone. What's past is past. Let me leave the blows in the Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So let's talk about the cartel. What was a cartel? You know, when we think of cartel, we think of Pablo Escobar and so on and so forth like that. And I use the word cartel because we're in Central America and mafia organizations are known as cartels. But this organization wasn't a cartel in the respect that they moved only drugs. They did move drugs, but they also did human trafficking. They also trafficked arms. The most lucrative thing you can do illegally in Central America and South America is, is to traffic arms because... Arms are like a thousand percent profit. Cocaine is only about 200, 250 percent profit. But the cartel, what was it? What was the association? It was a, it's more like a federation, a very loose association of members who each one did something. There was a drug trafficker, there was a killer, that was me, there was a human trafficker. There was a lawyer who did dirty paperwork. There was a fraudster who, who did like Ponzi scams. Uh, everybody had something to do. So Bill was working with this cartel but says he wasn't exclusive to the organisation and he would also do freelance work for other criminal entities who required someone with his, shall we say, skill set. Not only was he moonlighting with these other organisations but he also found a lucrative opportunity in ironically hunting people 
just like him. One of the things I did was I would hunt fugitives, literally hunt them, like people just like me, actually, who had committed crimes somewhere else and were stashed away with a large stack of cash. And I would, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just telling you what I used to do. I would, I would hunt them. And when I would find someone and find that they were a fugitive, then I would kill them and, and consume their life, take all their property, take all their money, take all their stuff. Another thing that I used to do, and I did this regularly, was hunt contracts on people who had run from the mafia in the United States. I had a good, I had a good contact back in Florida and another one in New Jersey. And those guys had contracts out on a lot of people, and, they would, and a lot of those guys would run, especially to Costa Rica. And I would hunt them down, the contracts. I would always look at them. When there was a new contract up, and the people thought that they were in Central or South America, they would send me the information, and I would keep my eyes open. And, and very often, I would run across that person and, and collect on the contract. That's how I worked. The cartel wasn't. I started off as just a worker. And, and through a, a comedy of errors, I, I did a job once. And after the job was done, I was going to call and collect. It was a, a mafia job from the United States, just like I told you, I was telling you about. It was a job where a man had ratted on, I don't want to say who, I don't like to talk about things from the past, so we'll leave, leave the things ambiguous. A man had ratted on associates from Florida that had been in the 1990s, and he'd put quite a few people away. And the DEA gave him a new identity, made him a new person. He had located here in Central America somewhere, I won't say again. I'm actually serving time for this murder. So, I mean, I can talk about it, but I don't want to be disrespectful of the dead. Anyway, so I did the job, and then I found inside the house a safe with $600,000 in cash in it. So from one day to the next, I went from being a worker to being a patron, one of the, one of the members of the cartel, with that amount of money that made me very, a very powerful man from one day to the next. And so that's really how I made my bones in the cartel, if you will. I remember when I did that job, I did that job and I walked away with $600,000 plus the property. I ended up with the property as well. And I, I because when I made the money, the, the Italian mafia in the United States didn't give a shit what happened down here. They didn't want any property or anything in, down here. And so I told them that I didn't want them to pay me the contract. I wanted them to help me to get hooked up with a lawyer. And that's really how I got in. They, the Italian mafia spoke for me. And, uh, and I say Italian, not like the Godfather. The guys I talked to up there were actually Italians, like Italian Americans. And so, and we'll leave it there. We won't go any further than that so that they won't, <laughs> so that they won't cut my head off here in prison. Bill has now cemented himself as a player in this world, which apparently ruffles some feathers, but he says he simply used violence, or at least the very real threat of violence, in which to stop things getting out of his control. I had this huge island property. I had a farm, a working farm that was producing, you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, paying for my living expenses very nicely. Had a crew who now belonged to me, so to speak. I mean, like I had a plantain and chocolate plantation. Chocolate is an actual fruit, if you didn't know that. I went from, you know, one day being just a lackey that somebody sends to to beat the shit out of somebody to being like el patron, and I don't think that I was ready for that. I'll be honest with you, I didn't handle it very well. I went overboard with it. I, I really, you know, started to believe my own bullshit. And so anyway, so I rose up into the group here and, and kind of stuck my head up above the sand there and said, I'm not taking orders from anybody anymore because now I, I give the orders and 
And several of the guys didn't like that. And they're like, we're not open for another member, so on and so forth. And I said, well, then I'll fucking kill you. And then you won't have to worry about it anymore. And everybody said, no, welcome, Bill. Welcome to the group, you know. So I didn't, I didn't take over. I wasn't a leader. There was no leader. It was a consortium, you know. It was a, a group of men who consulted one another when it was necessary. There was no taxes paid one to another or none of that sort of shit. It's just like if you needed a drug trafficker, you used this guy. And if somebody else tried to come in, we all ganged up against that person, something like that. And that's one of the reasons why. The, re- the reasons why they accepted me was pure violence. They didn't have a choice because I would kill you if you didn't if you didn't accept me. And and but anybody else that tried to get in the group, like let's say another drug trafficker, stuck his head up and said, "I'm going to be in the group too." Well, they would send me to kill that guy. I remember there was a movie where Daniel Day Lewis played Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York, and he says something to the effect in that movie, "I have stayed alive through the spectacle of violent acts," and that stayed with me so even here in prison during my time in prison once every couple of years i try to just beat the ever-living shit out of somebody it's a shame but it's really effective because you know it actually happened late last year and so so but every couple of years you have to do something like that even in the criminal world especially and, and to maintain so like when somebody disrespects you or something to kill them in a public way was the way i maintained order with the rest of the group the group they had to can't begin disrespecting their maton, their killer. His wealth begins to increase, but instead of putting money aside, he was spending it hand over fist. As fast as it was coming in, it was going back out. Flash boats, brand new cars, living the high life, wanting for nothing. That high existence would come back to haunt me because if I had been smart, I would have just walked away with the $600,000 and lived happily there ever after because my living expenses back in those days before the $600,000 event were very low. But I figured, well, now I'm in the game and these big money deals are are probably going to come along several times a year, and they did. And so I just began to spend the money instead of saving it. I just spent it like a drunken sailor. My living expenses every month were about 30,000 US dollars. And this was in 2007. And I got nothing for that. I just had three houses, one on, one on the Pacific, one on the, the, the Caribbean, uh, one up in the mountains in Cerro Punta, in, in you know, like a really upscale mountain area, had like six automobiles, you know, shit that you don't need. Harley Davidson's, jet skis. Things you don't need, an airplane. So I began to to accumulate this lifestyle that was extremely expensive. And that's what held me in the game. Several times I remember being distraught at having all this shit and having to come up with money to pay for it all. And I thought to myself, man, I would just like to pull the plug and go back to living a simple existence many times. And if I had done that, I'd probably still be free. Or maybe I'd be dead by now. Who knows? Things happen the way they happen for a reason. I'm thankful. I don't I don't regret being put in prison, actually, if you want the truth, I, I needed to, I've had to mature here and become a better person, you know, and learn a lot of, a lot of things I didn't know before. And I was a very immature imbecile before, like an idiot, really, thinking there were no consequences for my actions at all, which I was very, very surprised by the fact that there are. That's all we have time for this episode. But coming up, while Bill gets word that an arrest warrant has been issued for him, And yet again, it is time to go on the run. But on this occasion, 
There's no escape. They were America's most wanted fugitives. That is until Monday. A couple who lived in Asheville is being detained in Nicaragua, accused in a string of killings in three different countries. Authorities believe this wild-haired man is a chameleon of sorts, changing his look and name in every new city. Authorities have dubbed him Wild Bill, but for the first time in years, they have him right where they want him, in handcuffs. Next time on Wanted. I'm a wanderer of the soul. Before the end, I plan to behold. But I know I'll lose myself along the way. If you want to find out more about the man who was once Central America's most infamous hitman and now a serving Christian minister in a Panamanian prison, Bill has written a book about his experiences inside Central America's prison system, the details of which are in the show notes of this episode. What's gone is gone. What's past is past. Let me leave it alone.